Heavenly Father, you promised to unite all people into one body. And yet we see fracture and strife and pain and anguish. Lord, help us. Without you, we have nothing. Amen. Okay, so I thought it'd be good for me to like just start with, this is my baggage so that no one's trying to guess, trying to be like, look, where's, where's he coming from, you know, this issue? So I just thought I'd highlight, right? So for, for me, this is my journey. For a very long time, now don't judge me, but I'm being honest, for a very long time, because I have immigration in my roots, my grandparents came to this country from Cyprus, because I had it in my blood, I thought that on some level, I'm able to understand and comprehend what growing up in a predominantly white world is like for those who don't. And I've come to realize that I have no idea. I have no concept. And I'm, that doesn't mean I'm not trying to learn, but what that does mean is that I'm coming to this with, with, with no understanding of what it means to feel and be on the outside. I have no idea. Okay? So that's, but presently, I'm also part of an organization that caters and promotes middle class, predominantly white privilege. Now, I know what you're thinking, whoa, but hear me out. I'm not calling them out. I'm just saying, this is all the baggage that I'm coming with. I want us to be honest tonight. So you'll hear the Church of England talk about diversity, but the structures it promotes a single flourishing, no matter what the numbers might say. I'll give you an example, right? To get ordained in the Church of England, you have to go through this long, rigorous process, sometimes lasting for up to two to three years. And when you first enter this process, you're asked to read, right? Read three books. Most people will have read them if you're in this process, right? First of all, that that assumes that you can read to this kind of rigorous level, right? I have a friend, and he went, and he was told to read these three books. And he went out, he dropped out of school at 14. What does that say to him? What does that say to him? Now, you might get through and you might read those books, but I want you to imagine that at the very start of this really difficult process, you have to articulate these books written by white, mostly men from certain theological positions and that doesn't really take into consideration your background, your culture, or your church experience. And I'm highlighting this to say that I'm part of something that caters to me. It tells me I'm great. Okay, that, you know, let's be honest, and that is baggage. That is real baggage. Okay, so, does this mean I shouldn't talk about what we're going to talk about tonight? Well, you, you may think not, but what I hope you can see is that even with my baggage, even with my distorted lens, and it is horrendously distorted, I'm just trying to open up the Bible and say, what does this mean? mean and not give superficial answers because it'd be very easy for me to be like Pentecost happened we're all united yippee okay we're not gonna do that what does it mean so if you'd like to grab a bible they're going to be on the end of your pews um, and turn with me to Acts chapter 2 on page 1093 Acts chapter 2 
rather than read the whole passage in one go, I'm going to read a little bit and then we're going to kind of grapple with it. Acts chapter 2, um, page 1093. Okay, Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 1 on page 1093. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Right, there we go. Right, Pente, 50, right? So this is 50 days after Passover. Passover is where they remembered, the Jews remembered that they were enslaved, they were prisoners, and they've been taken out of slavery, and now they're free. So 50 days after that. And traditionally, it's been the time where they celebrated what was called the Feast of Weeks. Okay, this was this big celebration All through the first five books of the Bible, you can see God referencing this celebration. In Leviticus, it says this, You are to proclaim a sacred assembly and do no regular work. In Exodus, it says, Present to God the first fruits of the new harvest. In Deuteronomy, it says, Do not appear before the Lord empty-handed as a response to what he has given. So it's traditionally a celebration of bringing our sacrifices to God for all that he has given us, the feast of weeks, the bringing of sacrifices. But more modern, by the time Jesus comes along, they were celebrating it as the time, 50 days after the Passover, and they accounted about 50 days was when the law was given. When they stood at Mount Sinai and God gave them the law so that they could be his people, God will be their God and they would be his people. So they were celebrating both the giving of the sacrifices and the celebration of the giving of the law. Now I want you to picture with me, right? This small little room with all the apostles and the kind of early followers of Jesus and they're in this room and it's silence. They've been told to wait. Just go to Jerusalem and wait. And outside, you've got thousands of people who have gathered to celebrate. And they're celebrating. They're celebrating the sacrifices that they're bringing. And they're celebrating the law that was given. So you've got these two events. Feast of Weeks, where they're celebrating the sacrifices. The giving of the law, your sacrifice, the, the celebration of that. And then we've got Pentecost, which is just about to happen. And in the middle, you've got this kind of um, reference. Jeremiah talks about it. I'm just going to read just a couple of verses so that we can link these two things. Jeremiah chapter 31, 32. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will be not like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So you've got these two celebrations, sacrifice and the law. You've got this promise that no longer it's going to be the law and then we're about to have Pentecost. So have a look at me. Chapter 2, verse 2. Suddenly... A sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And so there you've got these two imageries, wind and fire. What's the, you know, what, this is not an allusion to earth, wind and fire. 
Do you remember? That's not what, that's not what, we're not meant to read it and go, go like that. What we're meant to do is we're meant to read that and we're meant to go, that's, this is pointing us back, right? Wind and fire, this is the picture of God showing up, his power and his presence. They knew God is doing something. We read this, God is doing something. Okay, so verses one to four, that's what happened. And then verses five to 13, the effect. Let's just have a look at the first couple of verses. Verse 5. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one had heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? To the effect. Every nation is here. Every nation has gathered. Jews from everywhere and then suddenly they're about to hear the good news they're about to hear the gospel in their own language the barrier has been broken not just to take away what makes us different but the holy spirit the good news of jesus transcends all cultures and all races and then have a look down with me at verse 12 amazed and perplexed they ask one another what does this mean Peter, right? Peter gets up and he preaches an absolute cracking sermon. If he was here today, he'd be doing much better than what I'm doing, right? Because he knows his audience. He knows why they've gathered. He knows that they've come to celebrate sacrifice and the law. And it's about to become so much more. Because even with this sacrifice and the law, you still have two people groups. You still have the Jews and you still have the Gentiles. You still have people who couldn't access God. You still have the inner courts where certain people weren't allowed. And regardless of the law and the sacrifice, those things were there to point to the great law and to the great sacrifice. It was pointing to a greater moment, a greater celebration. And Peter ends this incredible speech with, he's talking about Jesus, and he says, this, this man, Jesus, God made this man, Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Therefore, repent and be baptized. And so the celebration, we know that 3,000 people responded that day. The celebration for 3,000 people changed from bringing my sacrifice to knowing the sacrifice. They came to celebrate the law which was written by God himself on stone to having God right upon their hearts. Just just picture that beautiful transition from our sacrifice, what we do, to Christ's sacrifice, what he has done. From outward law keeping to inward transformation of the heart. That's what happens in an instant. So then we come to today, right? All Christians, all Christians on this level playing field, we all need to see Christ and the sacrifice he made, our need for Christ. More than that, God needs to write on our hearts so that we are transformed. We all need Christ. We all need to be transformed. So then we take a next step further and we say, well, we all agree. Therefore, the principle, there is no place in the body of Christ for racism, privilege. We're all adopted into the same family. Yes, we might express it, but these are fundamental truths that unite us. We are all one. 
our need for Christ, and our transformation. We are one. We're equally sinful without Christ, and we are equally righteous in Christ. But that's not how history's been, has it? Rather than being stained with the Holy Spirit, rather than being stained with Christ's sacrifice, rather than being stained with God writing on our hearts, the church historically in many parts has been stained with sin. Let me give you an example. Okay, this is not all churches, but we, we have to take responsibility for this. The historian, Marjorie Morgan, she wrote this. When many Caribbean migrants started their weekly presence in the majority white churches, it quickly became a negative experience of repeated rejection for them. It was the one place where they believed that they would be safe from discrimination. They were nevertheless persistently disappointed. Dr. Joe Aldridge, he works for the kind of, if you think of CTIC, the, the national gathering of churches, churches together in England. And this is what he said. From early on, black people in the post-Windrush era graphically described from personal experience the context they found in Britain. For example, their experience on the bus when looking for rooms to rent, on the job, in education, in fact, anywhere they cared to look. Their reception was as cold as the winter weather they had got accustomed to. And then he uses this quote. Someone who came in the very early stages from Windrush. I was looking for love and warmth and encouragement. I believed that the first place I would find that was in the church, but it wasn't there. And so you see that the rejection of brothers and sisters in Christ who longed to worship Christ, they were forced to start their own churches because they weren't welcome. Now, not all churches, okay, but this is how the Archbishop of Canterbury summed it up. In terms of how we dealt with integration, appalling and a great cause of shame to us. So then the logical thought must be, well, hold on a minute, let's just get rid of churches. Let's just get rid of Christ's teaching. Look, we can show you how disastrous the church is. But is that true? Is that true? If you just removed church structure, if you just removed it all, what would we be left with? I think it's, I've been thinking a lot about this. I want you to know that I've been thinking a lot about this talk. And I think it's, because with, 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 with race, I think it's probably easier to talk about it if we were in America, right? Because in the media, it's on constant stream. We're kind of bombarded with it there. Whereas here, and, and rightly so, other things kind of take our attention away, especially the kind of discussion and the, um, the problems to do with gender. You have the sexual harassment report, the gender pay gap, and, we, and, and they're kind of in our minds, right? We, we want to be talking about that. But when you kind of talk about race, the, the response that I often get from many of my friends is, well, let's just look beyond race. Let's just look beyond race. But people aren't articulating that that's true. Right? There's this fascinating book, Reniedo Lodge. Fascinating book. And I was given it to read 
And, um, and I, I thought that what was going to happen was um, that she was going to unpack the kind of rise of popular racism. Yeah, that's kind of reared its head over the last 10 years. I thought, oh, that's what she'll, that's where, that's where she's going to go. But she doesn't. In fact, she doesn't really mention that at all, apart from one interview. And she kind of gives this kind of, hor- um, this historic perspective, and then she comments on our current situation. I just want to read um, for you um, just one paragraph. Repeatedly telling ourselves, and worse still, telling our children that we are all equal is a misdirected yet well-intentioned lie. We can just about recognize the overt racial segregation of old, but inducing in the myth that we are all equal denies the economic, political, and social legacy of a British society that has historically been organized by race. The reality is that in material terms, we are nowhere near equal. This state of play is violently unjust. It's a social construct that was created to continue racial dominance and injustice. And the difference people of color are vaguely aware of since birth is not benign. It is fraught with racism, racist stereotyping, and for women, racialized misogyny. White children are taught not to see race, whereas children of color are taught, often with no explanation, that we must work twice as hard as our white counterparts if we are wish to succeed. And she is not the only person that is writing about this. And she writes a very bleak state of our nation and the West, especially when it comes to white privilege. But many highlight, many go, okay, well, hold on, we've got to deal with this. But it's not just race privilege, but social privilege. And then it's not just social privilege, but economic privilege. And then it's not just economic privilege, but gender privilege. And it's not just gender privilege, but class privilege. It's even geographical privilege, especially when we start to compare the North and the South in our own country. Everything is at play here, and nothing has been fixed by the rejection of Christ or the church. So, we have a society and a climate that is totally built upon sin. These structures are unfairness and inequality. And on the other hand, you have church, the historic, unwelcoming, totally and utterly useless social club. And this isn't even historic, right? I remember, okay, I was, I, and I'm ashamed of this story, right? I was, I was, I was at a gathering of church leaders, much like CTEC, okay? And I overhear a group of white Anglican clergy. And they are discussing why someone from a different denomination refers to themselves with a specific title which is used for Church of England clergy. And mockingly, right, this is what they said. They shouldn't as they're not part of the national church. Now, what I like to do is I like to throw out lots of complex interlocking issues just for us to kind of chew through. But look, the issue here, right, okay, the issue here, because they would never fully articulate it like this. But what they're basically saying is the idea of a national or a church supersedes other churches. And that is 
an even worse spiteful heresy when we consider how the national church excluded brothers and sisters. Now, it shouldn't be done by any denomination. It shouldn't be done by anyone who calls themselves a Christian. See, God doesn't look down on our different churches and he doesn't go, well, I don't accept their baptism, I don't accept their worship, I don't accept their prayers. Because what can easily happen very subtly is that we can come from any, and this can happen in any church tradition, not just Anglican, but there is us, we're God's people, and there's them, and they're trying to just follow God. And the problem is, what happens is we don't take seriously Ephesians 2, right? Where you've got Jew and you've got Gentile. And God says, I'm bringing them both together to do what? To basically make one? No, to make one. One man. One body. I'm bringing them. And that doesn't say there's not, there's not room for culture and style and flavor, but it's the acknowledgement that we're all brothers and sisters. And therefore, we should welcome anyone Anyone should come and feel welcome. Let's be honest. We don't really, do we? Let's just put, let's, let's lean in. Okay, let's not back out. Let's lean in. Okay. Now, if you're a guest here, welcome. <laughs> let's just lean in. I'm going to just talk a little directly to the six, just for a few minutes. Okay, this is not to exclude. You'll see why. You'll be like, I'm glad he's not talking to us. Okay? Because the six, don't we? The six, the six, we think, oh, this is our service. We are so culturally neutral. Come on, don't we? We look down on the, you know, those traditional Anglicans. The 930, well, you know, they just, they, they, they have culture wrapped up in it. I'm so pleased I don't go to one of those churches or we look at black pentecostal churches and we go well that's a great church but obviously that's culturally appropriate not us we really are kingdom come god must be up there going finally after two thousand years there's a culturally you i don't know why six you're laughing oh you know god's up there going oh finally there's a culturally neutral church we're not. Everything. Listen, listen to me. Everything we do, everything we do, we keep others at arm's length. And I'm the most guilty. I've preached for half an hour. I'm going to preach for about 20 minutes. It's about half an hour. I will end up doing half an hour. Right? Yeah? I've done Old Testament, New Testament, theology, history, and sociology. You don't think I know who I'm preaching to? If we don't speak it out, right, what happens is, is it just becomes ingrained in us. Without thought, without repentance, and we just self-congratulate ourselves in how good our church works for us. Because isn't it easy? Isn't it easy to look at those awful white Anglican churches that rejected black brothers and sisters all the while, right, We say with our mouths how awful, but with our hearts we are just as closed to anyone coming from different backgrounds, races, or social economic status. 
So, society is not going to fix itself without Christ. Church, the social club, won't actually be Christ, and it'll just fail as much as society. So what do we do? What do we, what do, we do? I think we go back to, I think we go back to Pentecost. The sacrifice. We don't bring our sacrifices anymore. Whose do we look to? Christ's sacrifice. The great sacrifice. And that's Christ. There's a brilliant talk from an American pastor. I'd highly recommend it to you called John Tyson. His whole sermon is on white privilege. Now, if you have any privilege, and before you say, I don't, and before you say, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, it's so bad. Before you say anything, grapple with it grapple with this. And I'm not just fear-mongering. Let's just, you know, let's grab, you know, what privilege do you have? So then he lands, and I'm going to just land on Philippians. Right? What privilege do you have? This is, this is, this is, this is the saviour of our souls, right? This is, this is what, this is what he did. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Christ, who was the most privileged in history ever, gave it all up what we do our attitudes our actions our involvement with the society our, with society our words everything whether it's been handed to us by the sin of the world even if this is not how god intended we must think what would jesus do You see, sacrifice is not an optional extra of the Christian faith. Sacrifice is the Christian faith. And then we go to the law being written on our hearts. In a culture riddled with guilt, oppression, racism, power, privilege, and a church social club which is just as deeply troubled We must, we must ask the Holy Spirit to write on our hearts. Look, I don't know what's going to be written. I don't know how that, I literally have no idea how that would look. But I can tell you what it won't look like, right? If you're part of the 6 p.m. and you ask God to write on your heart, I can guarantee you he won't say, be more like the 6 p.m. If you're here from the 9.30, right, I can promise you, I can promise you that the Holy Spirit won't write on your heart be more like the 9.30. If you're here from the Methodist church, I promise you, God will not say to you, just be more Methodist. And what I can say about any church, he won't say that. He will say, be more like Christ. Be more like Christ. Because that's the prayer, isn't it? That's what we really want, isn't it? That's what we, come on, let's be honest. That's what we really want, isn't it? We don't want... Well, that was weird. <laughs> I appreciate it. 
Because that's what we want, isn't it? We don't want to just... We don't want to just do, because the thing is, right, most of us, we don't articulate this, but we'll think it. We just wish we had God pre-Pentecost, right? Because we just want him to write it on stone and be like, this is how you're meant to do church. And we're like, brilliant, that's exactly what I want to do. But he doesn't, he writes on our hearts. He writes on our hearts. I, I think, I, it's difficult to know what to do, isn't it, sometimes? I don't know. I, just, I think it begins sometimes with repentance. You know, that I, to say, I'm not perfect. The church I'm a part of, the culture of the church that I'm, not, I'm a part of isn't perfect. In fact, it's not inclusive, it's exclusive. Holy Spirit, write on my heart so that I can be transformed. I think that's the prayer. <clears throat> can, I, can I invite you to stand? Um, and I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, our greatest fear should be that we write on our hearts Our greatest fear is that we become like ourselves again and again. We can do nothing without you. So we ask Holy Spirit to write on our hearts. Not so that we would keep living as we live. Not that we would keep being as we're being, but so that we would be more like Christ. Christ.